Has the Christian religion always taught there is life after death? Some say that the people in the Old Testament didn't really believe in it like we do today. Is that true? And why does it matter? Hi, I'm Yvonne Prynn and welcome to Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. We'll answer these very important questions and more in today's podcast. Our topic for today, life after death, what does the Bible really teach about it? This isn't a minor issue. Life is challenging and contrary to what some say, becoming a Christian does not mean life will be easy, prosperous, and free from troubles. Quite the contrary. We may have more testing, trials, and challenges than ever before because we're Christians. You've chosen a side in spiritual warfare, and you have an enemy that wants to defeat you. And for reasons we do not understand, God allows trials in this life to test us and grow us, and for His purposes that may not make sense in this life. In response to this reality, the Apostle Paul, who experienced many trials, said, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. He went on to share that because of Christ's death and resurrection, this life is not all there is, and that those who have trusted Christ for salvation are assured of a fulfilling, meaningful eternity with Him. But the question comes up, how do we know that's true? Does Christianity really teach the assurance of life after death? Did people always believe that? We've been studying the Old Testament, and we need to deal with the challenge that some people, sadly including some biblical scholars and church leaders, say that people in the Old Testament didn't believe in a real life after death. They say those who lived in the Old Testament times only had a vague view of a shadowy existence in Sheol after death, and that the idea of life after death was man's invention over time, starting with various vague ideas borrowed from other cults and developing through the Old Testament. This is more than a minor intellectual proposition, because we must then ask, when does what we hold as the foundational truth of our faith become true? As I shared in an earlier lesson, in my personal pilgrimage to an assurance of my belief in Jesus as Savior and the truth of the Bible to tell me about it, I studied history because I thought if something is true, it should be true for all time. What I learned about the Bible and history answered my questions on that topic and assured me that the Bible is true, that it is historical and evidential, and its claims trustworthy for all time. So when I heard the claim, people in the Old Testament really didn't believe in life after death. That greatly upset me, because though much biblical revelation is progressive, in that we understand basic teachings more and more as we go through biblical history. For example, the Old Testament prophesied about the Messiah, but we don't meet the Messiah, Jesus, personally until the New Testament. Regarding the core beliefs of our faith, including the foundational belief of something as important as bodily resurrection, it seemed to me that it ought to be clearly taught from the first to the last in the Bible. If it wasn't, 
If a belief of the Christian faith as foundational as life after death was not a consistent teaching of the Bible, my personal faith was in deep trouble. With that as a concern, I did what I attempt to do whenever I have a question about biblical truth. I took a step back, and as objectively as I could as a historian, I looked at what the Bible, as a historical book, clearly recorded what the writers of the Bible taught and when they taught it. Based on that, I could then evaluate whether the teachings of the biblical writers were consistent through time. Finally, I also consulted what respected commentators said about the topic I was researching. My conclusion is that from the earliest pages of Genesis and Job, our oldest books, through the Old Testament and to the closing of the book of Revelation, the Bible clearly and unequivocally teaches the reality of bodily resurrection. As with so many areas of so-called biblical controversies, the answer, it seemed to me, is obvious when you simply look at the primary documents and date them correctly. I'll share many passages from the Bible itself that verify this shortly, but first it's useful to ask, where did the incorrect views come from, if not from the primary document, the Bible? So let's find out. Now, before we do, let's look at the source for this and many other false beliefs. I don't think it's changed. When Jesus was on earth and he was arguing with the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection, in the midst of that exchange, he challenged them by saying, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but they will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In summary, he said they were in error in this specific instance. This is the topic we're talking about today. Because they didn't read the scriptures. Because if they did, the scriptures clearly state that God identifies himself as the God of an eternally existing people. We have the same scriptures and more following the resurrection of Jesus and the writings of the New Testament authors that all underscore the consistency of the teaching of life after death and bodily resurrection. Since you can't get the idea that there's no bodily resurrection or life after death from reading the Bible, where does it come from? As I've studied those who hold what I consider non-biblical views of a belief in life after death and the timing of the development of that belief in Christian theology, their views seem to come from these three sources. One, an unexamined acceptance of scholarly, and I believe faulty, views based on non-canonical texts, not the Bible. And I will be quoting some of these for you shortly so you see where I'm coming from on this. Or they accept simply unproven but often repeated assumptions. Again, I'll share some representative quotes in a minute. Also, they come from not reading the original declarative and definitive documents about this issue in 
the Old Testament itself. Scholars who say the Old Testament does not clearly teach life after death, I say very humbly and simply, they didn't do their homework on the primary text because it's just really clear there. I will show this again to you shortly. And number three, they also did not read the views of well-respected biblical scholars who support the idea and the view of extensive biblical documentation of an Old Testament view of life after death. Now, in all scholarly work, there are separate echo chambers, uh, that's what I call them, of where people just quote each other and agree with each other and say what each other said and all of that. But I think, to be honest, you really need to look at and be familiar with opposing views and interact with them. And that's what I would like to do right now. So let me read you some summary quotes of what I do consider a false viewpoint. Quote, most of the scholarly world agrees that there is no concept of immortality at, or life after death in the Old Testament. With these words, George Mendenhall summarizes the consensus of critical academics regarding the afterlife in the Hebrew Bible. Even many Jewish thinkers deny an afterlife. For instance, in a 1991 interview, Jewish professor Yeshayahu, and I'm probably massacring his name, forgive me, Leibowitz, said, quote, Death has no significance, only life matters. In the entire Torah, there is not the slightest suggestion that anything happens after death. All the ideas and theories articulated on the subject of a world to come and the erection of the dead have no relationship to religious faith. It is sheer folklore. After you die, you simply do not exist. Critics of the Bible argue that the concept of an afterlife was an evolutionary development. God didn't slowly reveal the subject of heaven. Instead, the Jewish people slowly invented it over time. Now, my comments on this quote. The views expressed in the previous quotes I think are very misleading. To say most of the scholarly world holds to this false view is simply not true. Some secular scholars, yes, of course they do, but most of the scholarly world, no. As you'll see, the Old Testament has far more, again, if you read the primary documents, than not the slightest suggestion. The problem is the critics didn't read it. And the Jewish people did not invent the idea. God revealed it, and not slowly. It is there from the earliest book of the Bible, as I'll demonstrate. Let me read to you another representative false view. And again, please trust me on this. These are very representative of many quotes that I read. This comes from a professor, Megan Henning, who is the assistant professor of Christian origin origins at the University of Dayton. She puts it this way, prior to the Second Temple period, both Jewish and Greek thought were dominated by the idea that people went to the same space after death and lived a shadowy existence. In the Hebrew Bible, this space is called Sheol, and in Greek texts like the Odyssey, it is called Hades. 
By the Second Temple period, apocalyptic literature had configured separate spaces for persons both before and after the final judgment, based on different types of earthly behavior. The final judgment or day of judgment refers to a future date on which all of the dead will be raised, souls will be reunited with bodies, and all people and nations will be judged by God. First Enoch 22, for instance, describes four containers that souls inhabit while they await judgment, each with amenities that befit a person's behavior on earth. This pre-sorting of souls was not random, but prefigured one's ultimate destination after the last judgment. Now, let me... Uh, tell you the problems that I have with this quote and a lot of similar statements to it. First of all, and this is a biggie, using Greek thought as a proof for what Jewish thought is, as clearly described in the Old Testament documents, commits a very basic error in historical research, and that's of simply dating the documents. The Odyssey was written about 750 BC or over 700 years later than the dating by conservative biblical scholars of the writings of Moses, including the Pentateuch and Job, which clearly teach life after death. And again, I'll be quoting them specifically. Apocalyptic literature, as is um, the book of Enoch that she talks about, was written even much later. Much of it actually was written in intertestamental times, which is after the entire canon of the Old Testament was finished, and it is not representative of historical biblical thought, referring to apocalyptic literature. And you can't say something written almost a thousand years later influences something written a thousand years earlier. You see, they're trying to say that stuff that was written really, really, really late influenced the writing of something that was written a thousand years before that. It, that just doesn't work. The book of Enoch, which was written around 200 BC, is not canonical, historical, or accurate in any way other than as a source of fanciful stories. For example, um, in the really f largely fictional uh, movie on Noah, their idea of the Watchers came from the Book of Enoch, which is not a biblical book, and again, has nothing to do with a biblical view of the afterlife. Let's now go back to the original source to see what it, what the Old Testament had to say on the topic. Because the best way to determine what the Old Testament said and what the Old Testament people believed about the afterlife is to simply read the book. To determine this, you can set aside believing that the Bible is divinely inspired. Simply look at it as what the writers of that time had to say and when they said it. In some instances, it helps to work, look up words in the original language, and I will give you an example of that in a little bit from the book of Job, but any study of original languages is not essential. The clear sense of the beliefs recorded does not require detailed study. A plain reading of the Bible will make these views clear. I'll now share some quotes along with their approximate dates of composition on this topic from the Old Testament. Now, I do acknowledge up front 
the dating that I will give you is not accepted in the entire academic world. It is, however, the accepted dating by conservative biblical scholars and many scholars who are not even believers, who are not even Christians. And in the podcast and the teaching that I do on how we got our Bible, how we date things, I do believe that what I am giving you is extremely accurate dating. But I do acknowledge it's not held by everyone. But I think it is accurate. So let's get into that. After these verses, I am then also going to quote some really um, some excellent commentary on this. Actually, I'm uh, going to split in, uh, splice in, I guess I should say, some of the commentary in between the verses, but I think it will be useful. First of all, let's begin with Job. Many consider the book of Job the first recorded content. Now, obviously, not uh, the content of what happened, as that is in Genesis, but the first recorded content that Moses had access to during his time in Midian, before he led the children of Israel out of Egypt, and that he is the editor who wrote it down in its final form. Now, please see the lessons on Genesis and Job, and I will get into a much more detailed study of why I agree with the dating in that way. But when we look at Job as some of the first recorded content, we find that here is what Job says about life after death. Now I'll read the passage and then I will go back to it and comment on some of the specific words in it. But I think just the passage itself, the meaning is very clear. In Job 14.14 he says, If someone dies, will they live again? All the days of my hard service I wait for my renewal to come. You will call, he's speaking to God, and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. And then in Job 19.25 he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Now let me go back to two phrases here. First of all, in that phrase, I will write for my renewal to come. The word renewal is the Hebrew word chalifa. It means a change of garments, a renewal. Uh, and it reminds me of the Apostle Paul's comment in 2 Corinthians 5, one, where he says, For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not human hands. Job's statement, I will wait for my renewal to come, I think is a very similar thought. And then in the next passage where he says, After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Those two words are exactly the same in Hebrew. Another translation makes the meaning even more clear. I just love this verse when I found it. In the Living Bible it puts it this way, But as for me, I know my Redeemer lives, and that he will stand upon the earth at last. And I know that after this body has decayed, this body will see God. Then he will be on my side. Yes, I shall see him, not as a stranger, but as a friend. What a glorious hope. 
Not only does Job talk about a life after death, but a physical, tangible, this body shall see God resurrection. This tangible, touchable quality of Christian resurrection calls to mind when Jesus said to his disciples after his resurrection, look at my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. By simply reading the text, we see that from the earliest book written in the Bible until the resurrection of Jesus himself, the reality of physical, tangible resurrection is affirmed. It's important to take a minute to note that this belief is unique from many world religions who view the afterlife as a total loss of individual personality and personhood into an amorphous nirvana of nothingness. The biblical belief of the afterlife is in total contrast to that. Now, before we continue with specific Bible passages, the following, following the content in Job, I found a really interesting comment from the commentary, Hard Sayings of the Bible. I highly recommend that if you get the chance that you read that book, that you look at that book, and I'll have more about it in my notes and, and uh, you know, a link to it, that you check out the whole passage, the whole section that they have on life after death in the Old text in the Old Testament, it goes into tons more detail. Here is a quote uh, from Hard Sayings of the Bible. Other evidences of the belief of a real life after death are afforded by the stern warnings from Mosaic times about any dabbling in necromancy, the cult of contacting the dead. What harm would there have been in fooling around with something that had no reality? Already in the middle of the second millennium BC, the Israelites knew the afterlife was real and thus they were warned not to be involved in any contacting of individuals who had passed beyond this world. Now let's move along to some specific Old Testament biblical passages, and I will give you the approximate dates of them. The first, I'm going to have two um, that I'll, I'll read in tandem with each other. The first one is about King Saul, who was the first king of Israel, and then King David, who followed them. Uh, they're both from approximately uh, 1035 BC on. So these, after the book of Job, and then after that statement on the Mosaic times, this comes next. Saul, just before his death, in 1 Samuel 28, <laughs> this is one of the more odd affirmations of the afterlife, but in this section, Paul sinned by having a witch call up Samuel from the dead. Now God allowed this, and when Samuel appears, Samuel tells Saul that he, Saul and his sons, would be with Samuel the next day, affirming they would die in battle and go to where Samuel was in the presence of God. Saul's sons will die by the enemy. Saul, though, takes his life and dies by suicide. But Samuel makes no distinction of where they all will go following death. Now, an important side note here that's really worth mentioning is this passage is significant for those who die by suicide. They are not abandoned by God, even if they died in sin and sadness. Once a child of God, always a child of God. Even if, as C.S. Lewis says, we arrive home quite messy and muddy, we will be welcomed with love and we will be with the Lord forever. 
The next story, the next in the timeline, is of David and Bathsheba's child who died and what it teaches us. They had a child as a result of their adulterous relationship and as a part of the judgment for that, God told David the child would die. After the child's death, the narrative continues. His attendants ask him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. David answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David affirmed, that he would see his son again. And in addition to the to an affirmation of life after death, this passage is a comfort to those who lost infants, who died long before they can make a personal decision to trust Jesus as Savior. Those children are in heaven, and their parents will see them again. Now in Psalms, there are many passages that affirm life after death, and here are some representative ones. In contrast to the death of the wicked, Psalm 49.15 says, But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. And again, in contrast to the life of the wicked, who seem to do so well in life, Psalm 73 reminds us, Yet I am always with you, God is speaking. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, here's some more from Psalms, and most of these, of course, were written from the time of David on. Now, Moses did write a psalm, but uh, most of them were later. In Psalm 15:5, it says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You have shown to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And then, of course, Psalm 23, where it talks about how the Lord is my shepherd. And though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And finally, that wonderful promise, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Isaiah's testimony was written between 739 and 681 B.C., approximately 300 years after David wrote his psalms. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken.
And then in Isaiah 26:19, he says, But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. And then Daniel wrote a hundred years after Isaiah, and he said, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever that is a path I sometimes tell people to true stardom. You see, those of you, and I know many of you who are listening to this, you are involved in the work of leading many to righteousness. And this verse promises that you will shine like the stars forever and ever. We're now almost at our conclusion, and I have a little concluding commentary here that I want to share as I was thinking about all of these different verses. Now, beyond the obvious messages of the text, if you read the Old Testament, from early on throughout it, the writers clearly teach a belief in life after death. But there's another observation beyond just, you know, listing all these passages that I think is really important, and that is it only makes sense. God created an eternal people. In paradise, he walked with them, and this was supposed to last forever. That's how it was supposed to be. But sin broke that created close relationship, but not God's love. And that love is often described as an everlasting love. You'll see that love demonstrated again and again as we go through the Bible in the Old Testament as well as the New. And I have to note one more misconception about the Old Testament. The Old Testament God is not an angry God. That statement can only be said by people who've not read the stories of God's love and grace and continual saving of his people, as you'll discover when you read it. Continuing on, the entire story of the Bible is about God's mission to rescue His creation that they might once more walk together on a tangible, redeemed earth. In the end of humanity's story, we are promised a new heaven and a new earth. And I heard in the book of Revelation, it says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Once again, our God will walk among and with his people. The story hasn't changed. From the Old Testament stories of Job, Daniel, David, and many others, to the New Testament thief on the cross who Jesus promised that today he would be with him in paradise. John 3.16 sums this up. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Our conclusion to Is There Life After Death is an emphatic yes. Eternal, real, physical, and bodily resurrected life 
is a teaching and promise taught in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and for all who trust Jesus as their personal Savior. One final application and very and a very important one. If you aren't sure of where you stand with Jesus and need assurance of life after death, of eternal life for you personally, please go to Bible805.com and click on the image that says Christian Salvation and Discipleship. It'll take you to a series of podcasts and blogs that explain what it means to become a Christian and grow as a disciple. Please take time to do that and be assured that you have life after death as a gift from trusting Jesus. That's all for now. Please check out the show notes and other materials at www.bible805.com. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Prynn, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.